Hi, this is Rachel. And this is Christy. And welcome back to Constant Chaos. Hi, welcome back to Constant Chaos. Today, we welcome Dr. Brad Berman. He's a developmental pediatrician in um, Walnut Creek, and I am so excited that he agreed to be on our podcast. Um, Since the very beginning of my story with my son, people have talked about Dr. Berman and how great he is, and he was the one you needed to see, but you're never going to get in to see him because he's too busy. He's got a wait list. There's no way. And at one point, I was so tired and exhausted, and I just picked up the phone and called him and left a pleading, pleading message. And I was so appreciative. Two days later, when Dr. Berman himself called me back, talked to me on the phone for a half an hour, and agreed to see me and my son within a month, which he said at the time, sorry, you have to wait so long. But I was just so thrilled, and he was the one that got us on our path. And I I couldn't be more appreciative, and I'm so excited to talk to him today. We're gonna talk about what is normal. But before we get to that, let's um, welcome Brad. And if you can give a little background about yourself. Well, thank you, Christine and Rachel. Thank you very much for um, allowing me to share a conversation with you in what's, um, I would imagine, becoming a growing podcast. Um, um, We're trying. (laughs) Really another representation of being part of a community. Uh, for those that, well, nobody will know, is that I had not spoken with Rachel in a long time, and we bumped into each other at a local grocery store. We were all wearing masks and stuff. Um, and that's just a reflection, again, of being in a community, right? I was so happy to see you and share how well my son was doing. Yeah. And, and I, you know, always appreciate that. I saw somebody at REI yesterday who was checking me out, who's 25, and I saw him when he was 13. So, you oh, know, wow. it's, it's just great. And, and it's representations of pathways of life and um, how terms and labels can be so supportive and serving mm-hmm. and so unsupportive and so disserving. Hence the question about what is normal. So I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician. I've been practicing in the Bay Area for over 30 years. Uh, A Chicago native came out to UCSF to do a fellowship in developmental behavioral pediatrics. And for those of us from the Midwest who live out here, weather does matter. It does. I'm one of those. Yep. So, uh, and then I've practiced in various sites at Children's Hospital Oakland. I've been on teaching faculty at UCSF for 32 years. I've been in private practice in the community for a long time and involved in many other sort of regional and national uh, coalitions, committees, and so on. So I am just delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. We're so excited. So let's um, get started in talking about, um, Brad, so this was your idea to talk about what is normal. And since we've had our original conversation, I've thought so much about this and how it relates specifically to ADHD and whether, you know, what we view as normal. Like what if, you know, I think, you know, when we think about our kids, I think like my kid's not normal because he can't sit in his chair. He can't sit down for dinner. He can't control his impulses. And so that makes him not normal. 
Well, I think there's also, you know, to kind of just chime in a little bit, there's also this box, right, that we're operating in. These kids are operating in this box. And so if you don't fit in the box perfectly, you're not normal. But what is that? What, like, what does that mean? And, you know, who's defining this box and why do we have to throw labels? There's so much to talk about. So, yes. So um, for those of you listening, we have 16 hours to go over this. And <laughs> um, so these are all really poignant and powerful and we'll just touch on them. And I am letting Rachel and Christy know to cue me when we are going too deeply into a particular topic. Um, and perhaps on another day, if this goes well, we can bring up more of this. I'm pulling up a definition that I want to share with you in a moment. Um, so I've been thinking for a long time uh, about the sense of normalcy. Uh, and where it comes up is that I first practiced as a general pediatrician in the Chicago suburbs, and my heart has always been in general pediatrics, and that means taking care of children who have what we call a typical range of development and behavior and so on, right? Um, except that when I was practicing general pediatrics with a healthy working class population in the Western suburbs, parents were coming in all the time with questions like, how do I have my child do X, Y, and Z? Or my child is doing this, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. And I was woefully unequipped and certainly inexperienced to begin to even answer these other than what a book tells me, and that just didn't cut it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that took specialty training. It took many years of experience. Uh, the, the, you know, People say, how do you learn this stuff? And the answer is from parents, more than any source of information from parents and from the children themselves. Mm -hmm. That's where you learn. And then the third is my own child, who's now nearly 30, is, is experiencing what it means to be a parent. Mm -hmm. So that really guides this. And so to get back to the topic, so over a period of time, I began to get confused about what we call normal and abnormal because I was seeing children with various diagnostic patterns, if you will, from ADHD to autism, spectrum disorders, behavioral challenges, et cetera, that it isn't that I lost sight of what is normal or abnormal. It's that my lens changed. Mm -hmm. Because within the context of the life of a child or adolescent with said challenges, what is normal is what goes on inside your four walls. So what is normal is what goes on in the mind of that child. So everybody has their own normal. In a sense, yes. And so you raised a really good question, Christy, which is not fitting in the box. Now, to be fair, nobody fits in perfectly, right? So um, perfectly is not something that I think uh, even school districts hold to. But the question becomes, how do we determine what is normal and what is abnormal or what is typical and what is atypical? And we'll talk about it in reference to ADHD because that's the particular theme of this podcast, but it would apply to everything within childhood. Okay. Um, guide me a little bit in terms of your own sense about understanding 
those terms so that I can then reflect on that further from the lessons I've learned. Uh, so if you're asking me, I feel like um, there, and maybe we go back to talking about it in context of like the school district, right? Yes. So there's, there's this way in which they're trained or they teach. And I feel like there's a whole spectrum of kids, right? And mm -hmm. some of them fit better within the walls of how they're approaching academics, um, you know, interaction with other children, their ability to sit still in a room, whatever, whatever the case may be, right? And so when you have a child that falls out of that, I feel like what then happens is we need to label them to define how or why they're fitting out of that to get them mm -hmm. extra support mm -hmm. to help them fit better into the box. And so in the terms of ADHD, what we're seeing when they're little, right? They're, they maybe they can't sit still, or maybe it's bringing up these extra like emotional dysregulation um, aspects of their behavior. And so you're seeing, you know, maybe it's bringing up dyslexia or learning disability because a lot of them have all mm -hmm. these different things that fit into their little cocktail in their brain. So what, you know, what's happening out there? How are we, um, how are we handling these children and how are we making them feel like they are normal and not that there's something wrong with them or they're broken? Rachel? Um, I think Christy summed it up pretty well. I mean, I just, part of me thinks like when you, Christy, when you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking from my own experience where I feel like when we think about that box, um, I think it's funny because like with one of my sons, it's like I always knew he wasn't quote unquote normal from a very, very young age before school even happened. And then actually school put, because there was a box of school, he fit into the box because he gave, it gave him that structure right. to be able to, he could fit in a box when he knew what the box was. Okay. So boxes can be useful. If I look at it from a medical point of view, we're taught to diagnose, right? And there are criteria for diagnosis and there are tests to establish or support or, or disclaim those criteria. And we do this all the time. And so it is with neurodevelopmental difficulties. Now, there are, do, I, do I believe that there's a biologic substrate or, or element called attention deficit disorder? Yes. Um, it's not the best term. It should be more intention challenge disorder rather than attention deficit disorder, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, but do I think it's real? Yes, sure. Do I think that all of these are real? Yes. Um, and so diagnoses or labels or terms are important first and foremost for identifying and understanding, not rushing to get services, okay? So we need to think beyond a school system here. It's to understand. Mm -hmm. um, because parents need this and children need this or adolescents need this. And there's so many reasons why. Then, or simultaneous to that, it's others need to understand how this student or child or teen operates, right? So a girl with autism who was in a general education fourth grade class, and let's say this is not during COVID, has difficulty 
playing with other students on the playground. That's because she has this neurologic thing called autism, even though she's in general education. But as we start to talk about that, the question comes to mind, well, she needs to be able to learn how to do it. But don't the other students, don't they need to learn how to enter into her culture as well? Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm very serious about this. Yeah, so well, and who's teaching them? No one's teaching them how to do that. Exactly. Right, we're so just asking the, that girl to learn how to play with right. the other kids without changing their world at all. Exactly. And, you know, and, and there are plenty of places that do this. It's not impossible to do. And we're not going to talk about practical and pragmatic today, yeah. but much more philosophical, but I think fundamental. So all of these caused, you know, myself and other colleagues of mine of similar levels of experience to call into question this whole notion of normal and abnormal. And so where most of us have come to is to shift away from those. I, I do not use those terms any longer. Function and dysfunction, absolutely. Yeah. Able and disabled, absolutely. Um, diagnosis, absolutely. Phenomenologic description, which means after several hours of evaluation, we still can't put our finger on it, and I can't call it XYZ syndrome, but we can describe it and therefore support it, absolutely. But to say it's normal or abnormal automatically puts it into a whole different category. And as I think, Krista, you said, is feeling damaged or broken, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. there's, a, there's, there's by definition a pejorative element to it. Right. If, you know, and, and all we need to do is think back several weeks or yesterday about the terms of racism, right? It's another ism. Um, so there's actually a term called ableism and disableism. So all of those exist. Now, um, I want to share with you a definition of disability. Do I believe disability exists? Yes. And internationally, worldwide, that's the term everyone uses now. Mm -hmm. And we've tried to, and I've been through this myself, you know, differently abled, uh, neurotypical, neuroatypical. Um, no longer can I tell who's neurotypical and neuroatypical because in some ways everybody's <laughs> both. Exactly. Um, enough said. But here's a term about disability. Disability is an inclusive broad narrative that I would put in, and I, I didn't come up with this, but, but it's taken years to really figure this out, in what's called the capacity context interaction model. And I won't get too scientific about this. But this is the capacity of the individual, the context they are living in, or the demands being placed on them, and the interaction of the two, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. The perspective is that there is no fixed disability per se, but only context-related disabilities. Now, there are certain caveats to that, right? If you have a severe brain malformation as an infant, that in itself is going to affect everything. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, having followed children like this, I've seen parents do unbelievable jobs of recreating their own expectations and therefore the relationship with that child. So it becomes normal right. from everyone else's perspective. So 
This takes into account the individual capacity and the performance of the individual that must be judged in light of the context. So the classic example is of someone who loses their leg. Let's say an adult uh, war veteran loses a leg, <clears throat> comes home, and no longer can do their job, which involves standing and let's say doing machine work, okay? <clears throat> so now they're disabled legitimately disabled because they cannot achieve what the context requires, their employment. So two things happen. One, the employer provides a disability support mm -hmm. and the individual person gets a prosthetic leg. Now they can stand. Now they can do their job. In that situation, they're no longer disabled. Are they abnormal? Well, you're missing a leg, and it's not a leg like you, yours and mine. But does that make them abnormal? No. Does it make them dysfunctional in certain situations? Yes. Does it make them functional in certain situations? Yes. And that's where the interaction occurs, okay? Mm -hmm. So applying that notion to school, in terms of children, let's say with ADHD or any other mm -hmm. diagnosis or category requires an understanding of the ability and disability. The challenges, right? Challenges right. exist. We all have disabilities. Right. And it's how do we address that to make it as functional as possible. And then you take away the arbitrary, we'll talk about this in a minute, arbitrary understanding of who defines what is normal. I think that's a big problem. And that's where parents get really upset. And I even heard it just now, right? Well, who's defining the box? <laughs> I know there's a lot of kids out there I don't think are normal that fit into the box. <laughs> right. Well, that's a big part of it. You know, and there's the old playground rules, my ball, my rules. Right. So it's their school district. They have to adhere to certain statutes and guidelines, and they do. And yes. no way is this conversation going to be about blame to anybody today. Exactly. And so they have to. And so, you know, the school districts or public education in this country is very much like manage care. Mm -hmm. We have to think in boxes. And that has a lot to do with our limited imaginations and the pressure we're under. And just the efficiency of understanding, getting things done and moving forward. Right. Okay. Um, I cannot tell you the number of times I pull my hair out and I'm getting bald um, <laughs> about an agency just providing the service because it's the right thing to do as opposed to not meeting the criteria by 1%. Wow. Um, and that often happens, but as a system, it doesn't. So who defines what is normal and, and et cetera? So we can go through that. Where do you want to go from here? So I'm just curious what it looks like with the school. Like what are the supports that, I mean, I know from my experience with the supports we are, we have, um, for ADHD, which actually, now that I've just said that there really aren't a lot of su supports that, you know, there's like the, oh, they give them the extra time on tests and 
things like that. The class, I mean, there's a whole list of accommodations that are right, very, right, hands. Sure. the doctor hands them to you, you hand them over at the IEP meeting, right. you say, here's what I need. And then right. you sit back and you go, well, maybe this is working and maybe this isn't. And then each teacher is different and each classroom structure is different. And, right. and you run from there. Exactly. And so, even with it, even with ADHD, like what I'm, what I've seen is that it's not considered an IEP unless it has other health impairment to it. It just becomes a 504 of like, well, maybe we'll give you support for this, but we're not going to, we, with a 504, we don't necessarily have to be re super responsible like they do in an IEP. Right. And that's a great conversation to have on another day. Okay. And I'm going to assiduously avoid that today. Okay. <laughs> um, All right, redirect. No, 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 Rachel, please. No, this, but this is important, right? Because we need to talk about understanding and expectations. Mm -hmm. Expectations is drives everything. It well, drives an under. Sorry, go ahead. Continue. It drives an understanding of doing what's necessary or not. It drives an understanding of expectations that a teacher has for each of his or her 30 pupils, um, for a school district, for parents, for the community, and beyond. Okay? So it's a tall order to individualize for all this. It can be done. There is universal right. learning and individualized learning, and that can be done. Um, but more to the point is none of this gets done without an understanding of expectations of who this child is and who this child will become. All and right? I think also part of the thing that always concerns me is teaching my child to understand who they are right. and where they thrive and right. what it, you know, the makeup of how their brain is working, which I think is transferable to any person, right? But some of these yeah. kids struggle a little bit more than others in terms of, you know, fitting into that box that we've talked about right. or what, whatever that normal is. And so it's helping to understand why it's that way, what to do to make them more efficient or effective or feel better about themselves. A lot of these kids are hit with self-esteem issues right. because mm -hmm. they are labeled a little bit and, you know, or they're getting in trouble in class or whatever the case may be, or their friends are calling them out because they're bouncing all over the place and they're not sitting still to watch the movie. Um, and so helping them understand how they thrive and where they thrive and what is special about them as a person. I mean, I think everybody needs to know what's special about them, but these kids sometimes have, are, are at a deficit in some ways. Absolutely. Um, as frankly is everyone, but it's on a gradient, right? right. Yeah. So if we again look at that capacity context interaction model and you have ADHD, boy or girl, and it really interferes with your ability to do the job in third grade or sixth grade or whatever grade, okay, for various reasons, then it's a problem. It's difficult, it's problematic, it is not entirely functional. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what defines, I think, the point of understanding intervention and expectations. Without having to call it your abnormal or normal, again, you can describe various things. Yes, you, you know, I, I also take it the other way of thinking about gifts. And I realize that some of your listeners may take umbrage at this. I think that we use the word gifts much too liberally. Mm. Wow. Um, 
And as time has gone by, and this is what I've learned from families, okay? Mm-hmm. I gave a lecture um, in Rome two years ago um, to a very specific group from the World Health Organization, and I had to do it on the fly. So I called it the 15,000 patient journey. <laughs> you know, after seeing 15,000 people, you sort of begin to learn. You know, you just knock me on the head and I'll start to listen. Um, there isn't a child I know, with exceedingly rare exceptions, who doesn't know where they struggle or that they're not making it at some level. Mm-hmm. Virtually every kid who goes to middle school feels that way at any given point on any given day. And virtually every student with some type of learning challenge, whatever the difficulty may be, will feel it. And we can call it anything we want, but they're the ones that still feel the, the difficulty, right? Right. I can see that. Okay. With, I can see I have a new middle schooler and I can see that he knows exactly what, what his right. pain points are. Right. So we do, as Christy says, need to point out their abilities, their talents, mm-hmm. even just their okayness. You know, I always think life is good when it's okay, right? Um, and what's not okay, because they know that. And so we can't be disingenuous. We have to help them understand the tasks and the environments that they are vulnerable to, right? Mm-hmm. That's only half the message. The other half of the message is then, what are we all going to do to help improve that if we can? Right. Um, and that's, that's the value of the diagnoses because of information gained from research and clinical experience over the years. But to say that that person is normal or abnormal no longer works. Okay. So I read a book a few years ago about where the term average came to be in our culture. And average predated all the psychological testing. Average came out actually in the 1400s and then in the 1600s from a, I think he was a Flemish astronomer. And the idea of planets moving in a certain average rate, okay? And that led to the industrialized notion of average. How large would a shovel, this is literally, how large would a shovel have to be of a certain size for an average man of average height and weight working X number of hours a day to shovel so many pounds of coals, coal into the machines. And that led to average as a bell-shaped curve and for all kinds of things. And then you get right. to the psychological testing, right? Yeah. So currently, all the psychological and educational measures are balanced and compared to on bell-shaped curves, where there's an average score of 100, typically, mm-hmm. And from 85 to 115 is considered low average to high average. And then if you go farther out on both sides, you get into other categories, right. okay? Um, and that's good for comparing populations and, sa- and population samples, if it's normed well. Mm-hmm. So if you're using a cognitive measure and it's not normed to an urban black population, then it's not really valid. Or if I take that test and I take it to a foreign country and it's not normed to that foreign country, I can't use it. Doesn't work. It doesn't work statistically. It may guide me and that's the point, all right? Mm-hmm. So then you get to the notion of average. Well, there is no such thing as an average person. They don't exist. The military actually proved that years ago. 
the average person doesn't exist. The average learner doesn't exist. Because again, it's the context, interaction, expectation, idea, right? Mm -hmm. So there are strengths and weaknesses. That's fair. You can operate within a range based on this particular curriculum in this community. But it doesn't take into account your socioeconomic background, multi-generationally. It doesn't really take into account all the other potential adversities that you've experienced or supports that you have. It's just a score. So when people use the term average or normal, it's just a statistical measure. And the reason I would like to eliminate the word normal is because everybody takes it personally, of course, or abnormal, right? So a learner may be abnormal because they are not able to access the curriculum within five points of, a, of, of the mean of a standard deviation. Got it. What they're doing is measured, can be considered atypical or abnormal, but does that personify it to that individual? No. So how are we supposed to help these kids? I mean, so back to the ADHD and the, yeah. you know, how, how do we, how do we parent them? How do we educate them? How do we get them closer to being successful? Because you know some of them aren't successful, right? Some of them are not going to be successful in a school environment, or you know they don't they haven't they're not peaking where they should be. So how do we get them through without feeling that you know abnormal or without feeling like there's a deficit? How, how do we how do we t handle that? Well, it's a great question. Rachel, you looked a little perplexed when I talked about that before. Did you want me to add anything else to it before I go to Christy's comment? I want to come back to something after you answer um, Christy's okay. comment. I've, I've got right. something I want to ask you about. Okay. So hold on to your hat and I'll just let it fly. Okay. <laughs> First, expectations. What are the expectations for that particular youth in whatever setting they're in? Okay and it's not gonna be the same. So let's just talk about school because we could talk about athletic expectations, we could talk about friendship expectations and so on. So the first is understanding expectations. And um, of course, you know, my job or any professional's job is to help match parents' expectations with the realities of the circumstances of life of that child, okay? That's first. The second is to understand and be aware of cultural myths. So the cultural myths of achievement, the cultural myths of average versus above average versus below average. You know, a poll in California a long time ago said 80% of people thought they were above average. Well, that's not statistically possible. <laughs> you see what I mean? No, I feel and like it's, that's so true. Like how many people, you know, talk about their kids. My kid is so smart. Everyone says how smart they are. Well, Has anyone and the, and that, told a kid that they're dumb or told a parent they have a dumb kid? No, I wouldn't say either. I would say your child is capable and really able in these situations, you know, and in others that may have difficulties. So we have to call it the way it is or describe it the way it is right. to change the language because the language changes our thinking mm -hmm. and our understanding. And that's what I would advocate for more 
than anything else here because that will also help to demystify myths. Not every child is going to be a basketball star. In fact, most of them shouldn't be because teams with only stars don't do well. Okay, how many LeBron James are there? Once a generation. Okay, so, so it's, you know, I wish we could really set our culture back to doing okay. Because okay is what we need. Okay is what makes cultures function. Now, once you get to that, Christy, then it's appreciating where the breakdowns are. Not where the strengths are, but where the breakdowns are. Because you have to address the breakdowns, the point of breakdown. It's a very old term. Uh, that could be reading, that could be behavior, it could be output, it could be time, all of those things. Because how are you going to know how to support and modify um, just like that prosthetic leg? We're creating prostheses. You willing to accept that? Yeah. Yeah. So we're creating prostheses. And how do you do that unless you know where it breaks down? You have to. Right. And you know, if we're realistic and not over blame, then children will understand that too. And eventually, you know, remember, there's a big developmental piece to this. Excuse me one moment. I have to let my dog out of the room. <laughs> I just let my dog in the room. He was like banging at the door and crying. I've been nervous that mine are all going to attack the door. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting so, for the puppy to jump up. Yeah. yeah. So it's about, it, it's about uh, uh, somebody understanding themselves, but relative to the cultural expectations that are required, okay? So, but you don't do that in the absence of also then offering, you know, with children, you never take, you have to take and give at the same time, always, mm -hmm. from infancy on, always, always, always. And so we're giving them other things. We're giving them tools. We're giving them changes and settings. We might give them a different educational environment. We might change the expectations of what they should be learning. It goes on and on and on. So, and, and there's so many of them, as you know, and we can't possibly in, you know, get to all of them. But the idea is how to help, how to support, and how to help that student become more successful, more effective. Not everywhere. Not everywhere. You can't do everything. I love the analogy of the prosthetic leg. I mean, that's a great way to look at it. Cause I'm just thinking of like what, you know, my kids right now of like what one of them needs right now and, you know, struggling in school and figuring out like how we can, he is capable, but he's struggling and where is the breakdown? And I'm trying to, as you're talking, I'm trying to think in my head, where are the breakdowns? Where can we put in that support so he can meet the needs, which he is capable of doing. See, and when you say capable, then what you're doing is you're, I'm going to reframe this for you. Then you're taking the, the strengths that Christy's talking about, that the student needs to understand, to be able to be applied once you're also able to help with the point of breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you have to do both. Now that's not easy and it requires time and it requires a change in expectations and it requires a busy teacher and a busy school and a busy everybody to take a step back and, and just individualize it for the moment. 
Well, and I think what all this comes back to is really, it's back on the parent. We keep saying this in our podcast, but like a lot of it's back on the parent because now you have a different level of complexity. And so you're spending all these, this time, resources, money, trying to get that understanding and try to figure out where the breakdowns are. And you have to be very present because to your point, the teachers are busy, the school district is busy, administration is busy. And so somebody has to help this child be an advocate for themselves and make sure that the playing field has been leveled for them, for them to be successful and feel like they are learning and making a contribution. Absolutely. So if you're in my office, I would say, ma'am, dad, I completely agree with you. Um, with a couple of different interpretations. Mm-hmm. One, I don't think a playing field is ever level. <laughs> so the notion of equity comes into mind and, and that is a much deeper topic than we're gonna be able to talk about today, okay? Yeah, we, can't, we can't even go there. <laughs> so equity comes to mind and that of course is so broad and it's vital. It's really at, at the center of the target here on equity. And inclusion is not equity. Mainstreaming is not equity, it can be but it often isn't. So those are entirely different things. They're just mechanisms to get there if it's done well. All right, so that's the first thing. The second thing is no matter what, nobody's gonna su succeed at everything. There are gonna be challenges that exist and, and you know, we have to be realistic. Now, sometimes they're minor, sometimes they're major. And that, that's where we get to the concepts of function and dysfunction. Well, so again, right? They change over time as this oh, person. Of course. I mean, they're they change over time. They change with context, okay? I talked to an old, old patient of mine who's now 23, and he's just about to become a journeyman carpenter. At 23, that's pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And he had significant language learning problems and some ADHD and a good school system. It just was never adeptly addressed and he never went to college and of course everybody sort of bemoans that in the meantime he's pulling down about 80 to ninety thousand dollars right now and he's not in debt wow and i'm thinking that's a pretty darn good deal he's successful yeah and yeah. more than successful he's a really really talented carpenter mm -hmm. okay so then what are the expectations here so parents have to begin to do a mind uh, not a mind change a dream change it's about altering the dreams. Mm, it's so funny you say that. We talk about, Rachel and I off, offline yeah. talk about that all the time. And that's a whole nother discussion to have, which I, I very much focus on now all the time. And that, this I had to learn from all the parents, okay? It's about changing dreams. Your child's not going to be like everybody else because nobody else is like everybody else. And no, that's parents are mourning that, right? right. Well, that back to like our con and Dr. Berman, you brought this up when you we first talked. It's like remember when we spoke about like you're not you're welcome to Kansas. Yeah, yeah. We're not Absolutely. going to Italy with everyone else. Right, and so there is grief always associated with this, um, and it's how do we identify the grief. And, and again, I'm not going to go through this now for sake of time, but if you ever decide to invite me back, I think this is a very important conversation to have, one of the most important. And again, I've learned it from families over decades. Um,
but it's also with schools or it's also with community expectations or employment expectations. We want our, what's good for our children, but who defines what's best, right? Who defines what's normal? Who defines what's abnormal? Again, function and dysfunction works. Average, low average, high average, as it applies to test scores or grade scores is fine as a descriptor. So in my mind, there's a big difference between descriptors and labels. Descriptors can become labels if they're misapplied. Right. But they're descriptors. If you're slow, you're slow. At 13, at 13, somebody said, what was my hope and dream? And it was to stuff a basketball. <laughs> Ain't never going to happen. You know, I was five foot 10 at, at my height and going down ever since. And I can't <laughs> jump. Um, and that's really not applicable for your audience. Yeah. But the idea is how can this individual over the course of time become successful? And I think the collective we, and this is in all socioeconomic brackets, this is in all subcultures of our country with all ethnicities and all faiths, et cetera. Private, public, doesn't matter. I think we have become trapped in these sort of arbitrary expectations over time of what measures success. So true. Yeah. You know, I, I, there are so many students whose parents have learned to relish the C because a C is a great grade for that student. And yet, if somebody else hears it, you're, they're going to sort of get the polite full smear. <laughs> right? Right. So true. Yep. And so, so the students ultimately get trapped in those expectations. Right. So the kid that it's, does really well by getting the C feels like they're a failure because they get the sneer when they, they're proud of their C and everyone thinks they should be getting A's. Right. Absolutely. So lest your audience think I'm being completely disingenuous, let's, let's talk basics for just a second. In pediatrics, or in this field, we have expectations of what age children should crawl, sit, walk, um, and all those milestones. We use them as guideposts. Of course, as parents, we use them because we're just so pleased and proud, right? <laughs> I can still remember the day my daughter took her first step. I know exactly where it was. I know exactly when. Mm -hmm. um, it was more important for me than for her, I guarantee you. Um, that's okay. So we use those as guide points, but they don't always define normal. And in fact, they don't define normal and abnormal. They just define what is sort of now typical or expected versus not expected, okay? Mm-hmm. But that's cultural too. I've been in countries where children don't crawl because they don't have floors, because they have shards of glass, the, the dirt is unhygienic, and the parents have learned just to carry their infants until they can walk. Interesting. That to me is a pretty smart decision. So they just never crawl. Wow. So they, so they just start coasting and then learn how to walk. Yeah. You know, and so it goes on. Now, obviously, if you have a child that's of, you know, X age and they're not doing the expected milestones, that's a big red flag. Right. But it doesn't define normal and abnormal. 
So why do pediatricians ask that question all the time? Why is that on every form when you're well, getting the, evaluated? <laughs> there's many reasons for that, but basically because one of our jobs is to monitor typical or healthy growth and development. And again, the language in, in our field needs to change too. Normal and abnormal, okay, no. It's, they're just red flags. Right. And it may mean that this child's gonna develop Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, all right? So again, it's not that they're normal or abnormal, it's that it leads to a dysfunction. Can we identify and diagnose it? Yes. Does that lead to a disability? Yes, in the sense that that child really is not gonna be able to walk or run. Right. Do you see what I mean? But we can focus it in those areas. Right. And then it doesn't become this personal sort of emotional self or other identified pejorative notion. Yeah. Um, and it's much more realistic. You know, does my child have autism? I'm really not sure yet at four and a half because our three, you may not be. I just had a conversation with a parent an hour ago, but Will I understand function and dysfunction? Absolutely. Will we be able to figure out some things to do? Absolutely. Will we identify strengths? Absolutely. I just may not be able to call it something yet. That's fair. And most of the time, that's what parents want anyway, is what to do. Exactly. That's what school systems want most of the time, fairly, is what to do. Now they have their own constraints too. And that's, you know, you can get mm -hmm. an expert for that to talk about that. So we all have our constraints and they're based on expectations and I have mine too. But the idea is to sort of let loose of a little bit of those arbitrary expectations as, as they define who a human is and instead really be much more understanding about ability and disability and function and dysfunction, strengths and weaknesses, you bet. All fair game. So I want to and bring back, can I bring back my point that I wanted to ask you? Yes, ma'am. I'm going to go back a ways in our conversation. You were saying that you don't like, when you're talking about AD, maybe it was ADHD or anything, calling it a gift. Right. So I, cause I know we hear a lot with ADHD is my superpower. Right. Um, it's a superpower. It's, it makes me better or whatever. Um, I'm just curious why you don't like that term. Because what happens when it doesn't? make you better what happens when it's not a superpower right because that doesn't i understand why to do it and i've done a ton of reframing in fact mm -hmm. that's very much what i do professionally <laughs> is reframe things right i'm reframing it for you right now mm -hmm. the challenge with that is that it 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 what happens when it doesn't work then the message becomes disingenuous well if this is a gift then how come i suck right so to speak and I learned that many years ago from a very bitter, very frustrated 16-year-old girl who had learning disabilities and she knew it. She knew exactly where they were. She didn't know the terms for it. She didn't know what to do with it. She was the only person that believed it. Mm -hmm. Imagine how frustrating that is. So I don't think of any of these as gifts or not gifts per se. And I understand the reframing of it. You know, there are things about people with ADHD that are really, really superlative. And does that take into account where they live, how they're raised, access to resources, and what we call native intellectual ability? Gee, I don't know. 
So. No, it's, it's interesting it's, you say that. Cause I, I tell my, one of my kids, and I've said this many times on the podcast is I always tell him that you have unique abilities. You can go yeah. farther, faster, you're stronger, but you just have different controls and I they're harder that. to use. I love that because the, A, they'll understand it and B, it's real. Yeah, just it's, it's, his controls are harder. Like he can, he's got great powers. He just has to learn how to right. manage, you know, the start and stops. <laughs> right. So it's, um, it's being realistic, accurate. Of course, it has to be developmentally matched to the understanding mm -hmm. of a child at any given age, right? Yeah. But um, it is certainly providing affirmation, support, and positivity. And when I'm saying this, I'm not just talking about the child or, or teen. I'm talking about the parents as well. Um, and it's keeping it in a realm that's understandable and doable. That doesn't mean that, you know, you try and achieve to the lowest denomination or the lower bar, by no means. Mm -hmm. But this is a long, long, long journey. A long journey. Yeah. Um, my medical colleague friends who are not in this field um, ask me about once in a while about what do I cure? The answer is nothing. I've never cured anything. Mm -hmm. This is not a field where you cure, and that's a, another discussion. It's a field in which you understand, you, you support, learn to live with you learn, and you heal. Yeah, you support it. You're supporting it. Right. So, and and then ultimately, it's it's to the the course of parents and children that ultimately, as they become adults, learn to live with this in a supportive, successful way or not. There's a lot of casualties here. There's a lot of casualties in what we have called the normal population too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's all about supporting them on their journey, right? We're Absolutely. all on the journey together. Right. And, and whether you're typical normal or you have a you need some extra supports. We all need supports. Every single one of us. There is a flawed assumption, Berman's, Berman's term. <laughs> I'll, I'll own it when it's my opinion. There is a flawed assumption of the word independent. We want this student to learn to be independent learner and be able to live independently in life because that's real world. Um, so in a room of 200 people, I would ask, how many of you live independently? Everybody will raise their hands. And then I'll say, how many of you live without any communication, support, assistance, or guidance from anybody else? And everybody puts their hand down. We don't live independently. We live in a co-mingled, shared, mutually dependent society. Well, you that's see how where your dependents are coming from, right? Right. I mean, that's how mankind learned to evolve. We never would have survived as a species otherwise if we didn't learn to cooperate. Teams, right? back to teams. Teams, villages. Right. Now, the village can be two and the village can be a hundred. Um, and that's where the term normal and abnormal is disserving. 
because everybody benefits from a village. Everybody needs a village. Even the most athletically talented boy or girl in middle school has a coach. Mm -hmm. Even LeBron James has a coach. Yeah. Well, and everyone needs to really appreciate on both sides of the spectrum um, or anywhere on the spectrum, I guess, that you need other people. You all, everybody's going to have strengths and weaknesses in certain areas. And all those parents that are saying, you're great, you're great, you're great. Well, they, I love that they think their kids are great, but every one of us is depending on somebody or something and you never stop learning and growing. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and by taking away the concept of normal and abnormal, which hopefully you're beginning to see is a very arbitrary definition, mm -hmm. then it opens up the horizons so much more. Yep. Uh, this is so, um, I think we're, we probably need to start wrapping up because we've been talking a while. Um, and Dr. Berman, I think we're going to need to have another podcast with you. There's so much more to talk about. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's never ending. It but is never ending. Um, to summarize for myself, this has been um, the most unique and amazing journey that I have had the privilege to experience. So when I tell families that it's my privilege to learn from you and be with you, I really mean it. And so do many of my friends. I mean, you know, it's not like this is just one person thinking. Because um, this is where we learn about who we are. This is how we learn about humanity. This is how we learn about how we get along with each other and don't. Yeah. We had a conversation with one of our, with our son last night and we were trying to, he was fr very frustrated with high school and we were trying to explain to him that um, he's probably very fortunate because he's learning so much about himself at such a young age. Yeah. A lot of people aren't and it's because he's had a lot of hard times and things haven't been super smooth for him all the time. And, you know, he has this great ability to understand how his brain works and how his body works. And, you know, he's dealing with it a lot sooner than a lot of people are. And he should look at that as a privilege. And there are probably times he does. Mm -hmm. And then there are times when it's just so gosh darn frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. If this is such a privilege, A, why doesn't everybody else understand that? And B, how come I can't parlay this into success? Right. And why am I feel like I'm fighting and I'm doing 10 times more than everybody else is all the time? Because the reality is oftentimes you're fighting and doing 10 times more. So there are some harsh, not harsh, but you know, there are realities here. Some, for some yeah. people, it's going to take that much more. The question becomes then, if we, dis, if we can dislodge ourselves from the very boxed in definitions, then how do we create environments to accommodate and account for that? Right. The, yep. the, and, and again, that's a whole nother discussion to have. And it's hard. I'm not blaming anybody for it. This is hard. This is about raising the life of a person. It's the really, toughest job. Toughest absolutely. Job. And, the, and the one that's, you know, the most wonderful too. So I'll end on this note since mostly parents, maybe some professionals will be listening is 
years ago, I had some residents with me from UCSF and we're just meeting and wrapping up. And I can't remember what the issue was, but the child was about five or six. And some of it was challenging behaviors. And the mother, in just the sweetest, most wonderfully open way, looked at me. She said, Dr. Berman, when as a parent do I stop worrying? Hmm. And there are not many times when I am absolutely at a loss for words. I didn't even understand the question because <laughs> we never stop worrying. Yeah. It's just about what and when can we let go of worries? Now that is a fertile conversation to have. <laughs> um, you know, my daughter would say that too about me. So, um, well, thank you so much. We you. really appreciate your time. And we know it's very valuable and, um, We'd love to have you back another time and continue the conversation. Thank you. I just so value both of you really opening yourselves up to this. It's not easy. It brings up your journeys. Um, but your warmth and ability to share this with others will resonate. And that's what a community is. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Rachel and I really want to thank Dr. Bradley Berman for being on our show today. Dr. Berman had a practice in the East Bay called Progressions Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics, which was very well known and very difficult to get into. Um, Dr. Berman has since moved on to doing consultative work and is also writing and doing some ongoing teaching in the pediatric educational development field. Dr. Berman has a sweet spot in both of our hearts because he has helped both Rachel's family and my family along our journey. And we hope to get him back on the show real soon. Well, thank you so much for listening to Rachel and I today. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, you can find us at Constant Chaos. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at Podcast Chaos. Chaos. 